Take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 22 to 25. If you don't have a Bible with you, the, the text will actually be up on the screen, I believe. Well, church, I really enjoyed celebrating Holy Week with you on Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night. That was a blessing. And... Um, Risking a little bit of embarrassment, uh, Susan, I just want to um, tell you how great that song was last night. I just really felt like I was ushered into the presence of God, and I just want to say thank you for that. Yeah. Well, let's read verses 22 through 25. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? Who then is this? That he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. The title of the message this morning is, who is this? Who is this? I want to tell you something to start off the message this morning. It may be the most important thing that I tell you, and that is there is nothing more important about you than what you believe about Jesus Christ. What you believe about Jesus Christ is the most important, the most significant thing there is about you and your heart and your soul. Because what you believe about Jesus governs every single thing about you. And so I think that we need to get honest at the very outset of the sermon and of the service this morning. And I think that some of us are tempted to say amen to the fact that the most important thing about me is what I believe about Jesus. But in our heart of hearts and in our mind, we really think, you know, really the most important thing about me is my health. Like if, if I have my health... If, if, I, if I don't get cancer, if I don't get leukemia, God forbid that I, I don't get Alzheimer's or dementia, then I'm good. I mean, you know, I cannot have other things, I cannot have riches, but as long as I have my health, I'm okay. I got to believe that some of us think that way. Or, or some of us think, well, you know what, really the, the most important thing about me is, is my liberty, my freedom. Like, as long as I can wake up and make a living and drive to Walmart and hang out with my friends and grill out on the back porch, frankly, I don't need all that other stuff. I'm good, just as long as I've got my freedom, my liberty. I'm, I'm good. I'm American. I'm, I, I've got my citizenship. But maybe, and, and just knowing our body and knowing the way that the people in our community are, some of us might not think so much about freedom or even about um, our health, but we think about our family. 
that, you know, as long as I've got my spouse, as long as I've got my children, as long as I've got my grandchildren, as long as I've got my girlfriend or my boyfriend, everything else can pass away as long as I've got this human relationship. Other than that, I'm good. And I just want to tell you this morning on the outset that while human relationships are awesome and while having freedom in the United States of America is a good thing and while good health is, is really enjoyable, if you're building the foundation of the house of your life on relationships, if you're building them on your health, if you're building them on freedom, I want to tell you that your house is on a foundation of sand. And one day, that is going to sink. Now, the, the fact is, you may for the next three or four years enjoy your life as it is because you've got great relationships, you've got good health, and you're enjoying freedom, and you even have money to spend. And that might even go on for a decade or two or three. But let me tell you, there is a day that is coming in which the house that you have built is going to sink and everything is going to come tumbling down if you've built it on anything other than Jesus Christ. And so when the disciples ask the question, who then is this? They're wondering who, who he is. Who is this man? And so this morning I simply in the message want to ask two questions. Two questions. If you're a note taker, it's going to be a pretty easy outline. The first question is this, who is he? Who is Jesus Christ? And I want to answer that question, then we'll ask the second question. The first thing that we know about Jesus Christ is that he is God and man. He is God and man. John chapter 1 opens up by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And then it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten uh, Father, full of grace and truth. Let me just unpack that for you for just a moment. John actually describes Jesus with the word, word. He, he is the expression of God. He is the message of God. He is the declaration of who God is. And what does he say about him? He says that not only is he with God, but he is also God in human flesh and so when we look at jesus we're actually looking at god himself and then not only that when we look at the life of jesus we're looking at one who has become man and you ask the question how can god be a man that seems contradictory to me that seems like i just don't understand that well god has not necessarily asked us to understand the reality he just asked us to accept the reality that it is in fact true and so when we ask the question, is, is Jesus God or man? The answer is yes, he is. He's both God and he's man. You know, there are and have been for centuries people who have rejected the deity of Jesus Christ. They rejected the fact that he is God. But then they read the scriptures and they're like the disciples and see Jesus actually call the wind and the waves to cease and that happens and they have to come to the conclusion, well, obviously, this person is God. So then they try, try to deny his manhood. They say, well, well, if he's God, then he can't be man. But then they, they see his life and the see, they see the way that he walked and that he endured things that men do and he had on human flesh. They say, well, well, he's man as well. 
C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, made this statement. And I just want you to, to listen to this and just let it sink in. Some of you are, are familiar with this statement. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. People say this, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So the first thing that we need to do, people, is we need to recognize that Jesus Christ is both God and he is man. Let's embrace him as such. Secondly, he's perfect. Jesus is perfect. We studied the book of 1 Peter all fall and then on into the winter. And in chapter 2 of the book of 1 Peter, the apostle actually says that Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. His life was unstained by transgression. It was untainted by, by any type of rebellion against the holy God. He walked perfectly. He lived perfectly. He, he, he preached the gospel with purity. He loved people. He exercised compassion on people. He, he healed the sick. He made the, the lame to walk. He made the blind to see. He responded to every single sinner in a loving way. He responded in a truthful way. He always spoke the truth. He never spoke error. He never responded in sinful anxiety or sinful error or sinful anger. He was perfect. The scripture says that he fulfilled all righteousness, that there was not a single jot or tittle that he did not fulfill by way of God's righteousness. And you and I need to understand that because you know that both the Old Testament and the New Testament call us to a standard, and you know what the standard that, that God calls us to in both testaments? Perfection. We're expected to be perfect. God says, be holy as I am holy. Matthew 5, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard that we are to live by is perfection. And the fact of the matter is, none of us have lived up to that standard. Romans says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All right? That there is no one righteous, no, not one. And even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, Isaiah says. And so when we look at Jesus, we see, oh, but here is God, here is man, and he is perfect. He's something that I, I can't be and that I haven't been. And so the third thing that we need to know about the identity of Jesus is that he is our substitute. He is our substitute. And most of you know what a substitute is. It is one who comes in the place of another, who stands in the place of another and takes their position. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he made him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 
just, there's a lot of he's and him's in that verse. What, what Paul is saying is that God the Father made God the Son to come into our place and to take our place, to become our substitute so that we might become the perfect, the, the righteousness, the holiness that Jesus himself has and that he bestows. Um, essentially what happened is that the Father said to the Son, Son, I am commissioning you to leave heaven. I'm commissioning you to leave glory. I'm commissioning you to take on human flesh, and I'm commissioning you to live the perfect, righteous, holy, worshipful life that I have called all of the people that I have created and made for my glory to do, yet every single one of them have gone their own way, they have rejected my goodness. They have rebelled against my holiness. And I want you to live the way that I have called them to live. And then once you've lived that life, there's going to come a time in which you're going to be handed over to rebellious, hateful, vengeful people because they are going to be jealous of you. They are going to hate you. They're, they're going to be envious and covetous of your power and your prestige, and they're going to kill you. And when they kill you, you're going to be put up on a cross... And on that cross, yes, you're going to be receiving the wrath of men. But at the same time, you're going to be receiving my wrath. You're going to be receiving my anger. Because I have a righteous, holy indignation against sin. Because I love my people and I care for them and I want good for them. But they have rejected me and my goodness and my love and my affection for them. And they have gone their own way. And the wages of sin is death. And so what I'm going to do while you're on the cross and they're killing you, I'm going to pour out my righteous anger upon you. I am going to bring the fury of hell upon you. And while you're on the cross, you're not only going to see the wrath of men, but you're going to see my wrath. You're going to experience hell for me, for them. And so that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus experienced hell on the cross. That's why when Jesus was hanging on the cross, one of the things that he yelled out was, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? The reason the Father forsook the Son at Calvary was so that you and I would not ever have to be forsaken by the Father. He forsook and abandoned His beloved one so that you and I could be His beloved ones and receive His love and affection and grace and mercy and compassion. And so He is our substitute. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, that is, He was rich in heaven with glory, yet for your sake He became poor. That is, he walked as a, a poor person, a person who took on human flesh. Then he says that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I want to ask you this morning, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the great substitute? That he has been put in your place? That he has taken on the wrath that you deserve? Do you agree that you're a sinner? Do you agree that you make not only mistakes, but that you have violated a holy God? I mean, do you believe that? And if you believe that, you, you need a substitute. You need somebody who's going to step in your place and stand there and say, I want to take the punishment that you deserve. And I just want to tell you this morning that Jesus Christ is that person. There is no other person. Now, now he, he was killed. And after he paid the, the punishment, the price 
that, that we deserved, he made one final statement. He said, it is finished. And when he said it's finished, he breathed his last. And then a centurion came and prodded him, poked him with this spear, and blood and water flowed out. And then they ultimately pulled him down off of the cross, and then they put him in a tomb. And then ultimately, there was a stone that was over that tomb, and Pilate made sure that that tomb was guarded very tightly and firmly. But on the third day, on Sunday, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Yes. So the fourth thing that we need to know about Jesus and his identity is that he is risen. He is risen. Let me read to you what Matthew actually says in chapter 28. On the Sunday after Jesus had been buried... Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And at this point, they are, they are beside themselves. They are despondent. They are depressed. Can you imagine following a man for three years, loving him, understanding that he's from God, and that all of a sudden he's killed and he's put in a tomb? Can you imagine the hopelessness? Can you imagine the depression and the despondency that comes over you at this point? And so Matthew chapter 28 says, Behold, there was a great earthquake. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And the angel's countenance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he's risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. You know, one of the things that I, I questioned every now and again when I was a kid and on into my teenage years was, did Jesus really rise from the dead? I, I, what, I didn't really know a ton of the Bible. And so sometimes, I, and I'm sure it was Satan, it was the world, and it was even my own flesh that implanted these questions, but is it possible that somebody just, just wrote it down somewhere on a scroll, and then it got copied, and it got disseminated, and it's just been perpetuated decade after decade and century after century and century after century and that just people today are just kind of duped by this message well last night we were up at grace fellowship and i preached from first corinthians 15 on the resurrection of jesus christ and i want to tell you that over 500 people witnessed the resurrected lord over 500 do you know how many witnesses it took to verify something in the Jewish court of law back in the day? Two or three. Two or three witnesses. And Paul says, hey, go to Jerusalem. There are over 500 people who have actually seen the resurrected glory. There are 12 men who are going out and staking their lives on the very fact of the resurrection. I'm enduring persecutions and beatings and floggings and shipwreck, all because I have witnessed the one who has risen from the dead. I would not be losing my life. I would not have lost all of the good things that I had in the Jewish religion and in Judaism if it were not for the fact that I have actually beheld him in the flesh that he is resurrected. And so he is risen from the dead. It is a verifiable fact 
of history. And I just want to tell you today that if you are without Christ, if you don't love Him, if He's not your life, I just want, to know that, I want you to know that you can have the risen life of Jesus Christ. You can have it today. Look, just as Jesus was risen physically, you can be resurrected from the dead spiritually. Just as Jesus was powerfully raised up, you can be powerfully raised up eternally. And just as Jesus shed his grave clothes, his clothes of death, you can shed all of the clothes of sin that you wear every single day. And you can be made new. You can be made fresh. You can be made alive. Listen, every life apart from Jesus Christ is a living death. But if you put on Jesus Christ, you can be risen from the dead and have life eternal. Reading a hymn this morning, just reveling in this one. Up from the grave he arose. With a mighty triumph o'er his foes, he arose a victor from the dark domain. He lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah. Christ arose. Jesus is risen from the dead. You have to know that about him. And because of that, number five, he is life. He is life. Phil read this earlier when we were singing. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the what? Life. And then what I love about Jesus is he says, not only are you going to have just life, but you're going to have abundant life. He says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. They have it abundantly. Listen, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. I don't know if you've actually given your life to Christ or if you haven't, but this I know, that if you are without eternal hope, if you are without lasting joy, if you are without peace in your life and in your heart, if you are full of anxiety, if you are full of, of depression, if you are full of anger, if you're full of jealousy, if you're full of worldly pursuits that seem to never find their end, they never seem to satisfy you fully, but you're always looking for more and more and more, I will tell you, you're never going to find the answer inside of you or in this world. The only answer is the one who gives eternal, lasting, joyful life. His name is Jesus. Christ. Listen, I have the opportunity to go on public school campuses every week. And I'm just going to tell you, it grieves me to see teenagers who are chasing after everything that this world has to offer to try to find life and hope and abundance. They, they're looking for it in relationships. They're looking for it in, in success. They're looking for it on the athletic, victory on the athletic field. They're looking for victory in, in sex. They're looking at, for victory in popularity. They're looking for victory in every other place. And oh, how I want to plead with them every single week. You're never going to find what you're looking for until you bow the knee to Jesus Christ and let him enter your life where you can understand where true life is had. And I would say the same thing to you this morning. The sixth thing that we need to know about Jesus is that he is mediator an advocate. He is mediator and advocate. Paul told Timothy in the very last letter that the apostle wrote, he says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What is a mediator? What is a mediator? Mark, what's a mediator? That's right. Two opposing forces exist. 
And so you have one on this side and the other on the, on the other side, and, and, and they're, at, they're at opposition to one another. All right, There's something that's coming between them that they can't be together. And what Paul is saying is that Christ comes in the middle, and he is going to mediate on behalf of us so that he can bring us together with God, and we can be made one. We can be made reconciled. We can come together and have a right relationship with God. That's what Jesus does for us. Yeah, and, and, and he's an advocate because in, in 1 John, listen to what John says. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate is actually a personal defender. An advocate is one who comes alongside of another person and says, I want to help you in your case. I want to plead on your behalf. I want to give testimony on your part so that you can be in good graces with the person who is in authority. And interestingly, in that passage in 1 John, that word with, we have an advocate with the Father. Going back to the root of that word, it means to be face-to-face with. And so what Jesus is saying is that, is that I'm coming face-to-face with my Father, who is the ultimate judge, And I just want you to know that I'm going to plead your case on your behalf. And I'm going to say, Father, when you look at them, I need to make sure that you look at my righteousness. You need to look at my holiness and my purity because I served as their substitute on the cross that day outside of Jerusalem. And and because of what I did, you you now can declare them righteous based on my own righteousness. I plead on their behalf, and that's exactly what God does. He looks at Jesus Christ, he beholds the righteousness of Christ, and he declares us righteous as well for those who believe in him. He's our mediator, he's our advocate. Number seven in his identity is he is head of the church. He is head of the church. Let me read to you in Ephesians 5. Paul says, Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blame. I just want to tell you that Jesus had a specific people in mind when he went to the cross. He had a specific group in mind when he went to the cross. And you know what that group is? You know what they're called? They're called the church. The church. The church is the called out people of God. The church is the set apart people of God who have been purchased, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus loves the church and He is the head of the church. He is our authority. He is our leader. He is our source. He is the foundation of our life. Let me tell you, without Jesus Christ, there is no church. But with Him, we we have our affection. We love Him. You know, Paul actually went on to say that if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Listen, y'all, there is no church. There is no Redeemer church apart from Jesus Christ. And I know that we have a variety of people here today. And I do want you to know that God cares for you and that he loves you and that he has taken his son to die for sinners just like you. But don't you dare leave today thinking that you can live a Christian life apart from the church of Jesus Christ. 
because it is the church that Jesus loved and that he gave himself up for. And when you say, I don't need the church, you know what you're saying? You're saying, I don't need Jesus Christ. And if you're saying, I don't need Jesus Christ, you're saying, I don't need salvation. If you're saying, I don't need salvation, you're saying, I'm going to earn it on my own. And I will tell you, there's two ways to earn salvation, or two ways to get it. You can either earn it, or you can receive it. And if you're trying to earn it, I want to tell you, you never will. You never will. So I encourage you, I encourage you to receive the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, and be grafted into the body of Jesus Christ so that you can know the fullness of salvation. He is head of the church. He is also judge. The eighth thing that we know about him is he is judge. Peter said in Acts 10 when he's preaching to a group of people who weren't in the church, he said he was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Paul also said he will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. And so they're establishing the fact that not only is Jesus Savior, not only is he a Redeemer, not only is he one who wants to be your substitute, not only is one who loved you and gave himself for you, but he also is a righteous, good judge. Jesus himself said this. Go just take this in for a moment. Jesus said in Matthew 25, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. At this point, I was thinking about using an illustration. He will separate sheep from goats. And then I realized when I did that, it would imply that this was the sheep and these were the goats. And so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> All right? But he will do this. He will separate sheep from goats. And listen, he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire." prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Do not let this fact escape you, that Jesus Christ will judge every life, every heart, every person, and he will render to everyone what you are due. There is a day that's coming that you will render an account for the life that you have lived. If you are in Christ, if you have received His love, if His blood has covered over your sins because you believe He is your substitute and you have repented of your sins, then He will separate you and you will be unto His glory forever and ever and you will be like Him. But if you do not receive Him, if you do not embrace who He is and what He has done, then he will separate you from himself and you will go with the devil and with the demons and you will be punished forever and ever and ever because you have rejected the free and loving and merciful offer of a glorious Savior. Don't do that. Don't do it today. Don't reject him, but embrace him, believe in him, and receive Christ as Lord. 
Ninth, I want to tell you that he is Savior. He is Savior. Luke 2 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. John says, We've seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If you're like me, you grew up hearing that Jesus is a Savior all the time. I heard it certainly in church, but I, I would hear it in media. I would hear it from people, Savior, Savior, Savior. And, 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 and frankly, I didn't really know what it meant. Saved from what? Saved for what? Saved because of what? The word Savior inherently means to be a rescuer. It means to be a deliverer. One who comes and rescues another out of imminent harm and danger. And so when Luke says, and when John says that Jesus Christ is the Savior, it means that he has come to deliver you out of the darkness and the depravity and the despondency that you're in, that you may not even know that you're in. Last week we read about the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, and, and they were saying, hey, listen, it's okay, Jesus, we're rich, we're healthy. We're all good. I mean, I appreciate your offer for love and mercy, but frankly, we got this thing. And Jesus says, you don't have this thing. You don't have it. You are wretched, you are pitiful, and you are poor. And right now, you need to sober up to your spiritual need, and you need to receive me, and you need to live for me. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in a fix eternally. And Jesus says, I am Savior. Now, what does Jesus save us from? Like, if you're not saved today, if, you've, if you don't know Christ as Savior, let me tell you what he'll save you from. He will save you from the presence, the, the, the pollution of sin in your life. He will. He'll come in and he'll take, he'll take resident rule over your heart. And Jesus says, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and your heart of flesh, that heart that rises up in anger and in jealousy and, and, in, and, in, and in bitterness and in depression and in anxiety and in materialism. I'm going to pull that thing out. I'm going to give you a new heart that beats for me. And you're going to love me. You're going to live for me. You're going to enjoy me. You're going to pursue me. And you're going to find your identity in me. And as you do that, I'm going to begin to clean your life up. I'm going to be able to have the power to pull sin out of your life. And you're going to be able to live holy unto me. So I'm going to take the pollution of sin. I'm going to take some of that presence of sin out of you. And I'm going to take the penalty of sin from you. You know, I have said that I'm going to judge the living and the dead and I'm going to send those who reject me to hell. But because I come in to be your Savior, you're not going to hell. You're going to be with me forever. He says, he says this is what I'm going to save you to. I'm going to save you to the power of my Holy Spirit. I'm going to save you to the purity of my righteousness. I'm going to save you to the presence of my very nature and my very being, both in heaven and when we have the new heavens and the new earth. You're going to be like me. You're going to reflect me. And you're going to enjoy me. Because I am Savior. I am yours. It's a beautiful picture. And so that tells us, y'all, church, finally, that he is worthy. He is worthy. Now, if you have your Bibles, if you have a Bible around you, I want you to turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. The setting is the throne room of heaven. The narrator is the Apostle John. I want you to see what the gospel culminates in. I want you to see 
the pinnacle of all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. Beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, this scroll is a declaration of all of God's promises and all of God's judgments and all of God's plans for the future. And this thing is wrapped and it has seals on it throughout those seals and, and, and it, is, it is something that people are beholding and they're not sure what's going to happen with it. They don't know what's written inside of it, but one thing is sure, there's a problem. Let's look at the problem. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one, not angels, not Michael, not Gabriel, not righteous saints, not Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Gideon or Moses, not Paul, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. Or to look into it. And I began to weep. No one had the character. No one had the credentials. No one had the power to carry out the contents in the scroll. So I wept loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me. Weep no more. Behold. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. By conquering, he's saying that on Calvary, he, he was victorious. He did everything that his father set him out to do. And that he was also risen from the dead, declaring that victory. And so, verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns representing power and with seven eyes representing omniscience, which are the seven spirits of God representing this Holy Spirit sent out into all the earth doing what? Searching for unrepentant sinners. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, and each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And right now, church, I want to ask you to stand up. And they sang a new song, a song of redemption. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You paid the purchase price. You were the substitute. You are the redeemer, the people of God sing. 
from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I want you to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ does not merely end with his life. It does not merely end with his life and with his death. It doesn't end with his life and his death and his resurrection or his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. I want you to know that the gospel culminates. It finds its pinnacle in the glorification of Jesus Christ as his people, the called out ones, stand before him and cry out to Him, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. I want to ask the, the music team to come up right now, and I want to ask the second question. Uh, who is Jesus Christ? Oh, we've seen Him. He's God and man. He's perfect. He's a substitute. He's risen. He's life. He's mediator and advocate. He's head of the church. He's Judd. He's Savior. He's worthy. But the second question is this. How are you going to respond to him? How are you going to respond to him? Some of you have been thinking for a while now, I just need to give it some more thought. I, I, need, to, I need to think about it a little bit more. I, I need to... I need to I just need to meditate on whether this is really something I want to do. I want to tell you that the Apostle Paul preached one time and he said, Behold, now is the time of salvation. Behold, today is the day to come to the Savior. If you're questioning whether or not you should come to Christ, I want you to know that tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is God's day. I want you to know that behold, now is the accepted time. You know what it means to be a Christian? It means to exchange all that you are and all that you have for all that Jesus Christ is. You exchange it all. You say, I'm done with this life. I'm done with me wanting mine. I'm done with me wanting my glory. And I want to exchange it for everything that Jesus Christ is for me. And I accept what he has done for me on the cross. I believe it. And I now throw myself at his mercy. And if you do that today, he will save you from your sins. He will be your savior. And, and he will be your judge, but you know what he will declare to you? Not guilty. You are righteous. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to sing a few songs. And I want you to meditate on whether or not you want to come to Christ today. And after we sing those songs, I'm going to come up and I'm going to invite you to come up front to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. So you think about it. You pray about it. 
And I'm going to ask you in a few minutes what you want to do. If you are a child that is underneath your parents' authority, then I, I want you to submit to their authority. You may be thinking that God is stirring your heart and wanting you to come to Christ, but I just, I exhort you children to look to your parents, to look for them for spiritual authority. But if you are an adult, if you are a teenager, if you are someone who is independent and has lived independent apart from Christ, I want you to come to Christ today. I want you to run into his arms and receive his love. And so they're going to play a little bit more. And I want to give you just a, a couple of minutes for you to come down and run to Christ and receive his love for your soul. So if you guys would play and we'll just stand, okay? Do you love him? Have you been redeemed by the blood of the lamb? Have you said no to selfishness? Have you said no to materialism? Have you said no to the glory of this world? And have you said yes to Christ? Have you said, I want Him? Have you said, I want to run to Him? And I want to give my life to Him? Paul said, there is nothing like the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's nothing like it. I call you to come to Christ today. I call you to believe in His name. I call you to repent of sin, to turn your back on sin and turn your face toward Jesus who is Savior, who is Judge, who is King, and who is worthy of your life. If I was up here calling you to give your life to an organization or to an institution or to some other kind of enterprise, hey, I wouldn't come either. But I beg you right now to come to Jesus. Come to Christ right now. He will clothe you with righteousness. He will give you an abundant life. Oh, come to Jesus, please. If you don't come to Christ, you'll be judged. You'll be damned. You'll go to hell. Come to the one who is worthy. And let him shower you with his love. Let him pour grace upon you that you may know forgiveness that you may know redemption, that, that you may know what it means to have your soul lifted up out of the pit, out of the mire, out of, out of all of that sin-sick stuff that you feel night in and night out, out of the despondency that you're going through. Just call on Christ and He will rescue you today. Come. Come to Christ. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest for your soul. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So come to me. Come to me today. Today is the day of salvation.